Uh, still in Luke, Luke chapter 7. I think I'm going backwards through Luke. I may get to Luke chapter 2 by Christmas, and then we'll uh, have the Christmas story. But just kind of going back and forth. Luke 7, 11. Stand together as we read the scripture today. Now it happened that day that as Jesus went into the city called Nain. Now it happened the day after that as Jesus went into the city called Nain. That many of his disciples went with him and a large crowd. And when Jesus came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out. The only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Don't cry. Jesus came and touched the open coffin, and those who carried the dead man stood still. And Jesus said, Young man, I say to you, Arise. So he who was dead sat up and began to speak. And Jesus presented him to his mother, and fear came upon all. And they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen up among us. And they also said, And God has visited his people. And this report about him went through all Judea and all the surrounding region. Let's pray. Lord, as we start this portion of the service, we are grateful and thankful that you are God, that you came to earth, that you touched and changed lives. And you died for our sins, rose again to give us the promise of the resurrection, ascended to be our intercessor, our advocate at the right hand of the Father, and that you are coming again to receive us to yourself. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you, Lord, today. Bless our time together. And we thank you again. Amen. Maybe seated. Having hope and a purpose, having hope and purpose are a vital part of life. Hope and purpose are vital parts to life. You, you can't have life of quality without hope, without a purpose, without a reason to exist and be. Researchers have studied people. One particular study, they went to the office of people with similar jobs in a similar setting, and they noticed that at quitting time, some people left and were energized and excited, and then others were dragging. Why was there a difference? 
They found out that the enthusiastic group had plans, or they had hobbies, or they had trips. They had, they had things that they were looking forward to, either that evening, or on the weekend, or a vacation coming up, or something. And so they were energized. They were excited. They were, let's go. Those that were dragging their feet, barely making it out, always tired, slumped over at their desk. They had nothing special that they liked to do at home. Nothing special planned for the next day or the next week or the weekend or whatever in their life. Because having a purpose, a project, a reason for living makes all the difference as a person goes through life. You no doubt have observed some listless people, right? There are no future goals. They barely survive from day to day. You ask them what they're planning on doing. Well, I'll get a job someday. I'll, uh, I, I don't know. I'll, I'll fix the house up some year. I don't know. I'll, I'll go buy a new shirt sometime. I mean, it just seems to be uh, always listless. Something falls in there. Oh, what's that? You know, just where is, where is their goals? Where is their endeavors? What are they looking towards? Where's the purpose? Barely surviving. Always then in a crisis. Because they don't have something to look forward to. Everything is a crisis that occurs. 20 years later, still in the same boat. Haven't stepped out. They're not walking on the waves with Jesus. Never tried it. Never will. But now, 20 years later, less hope, less purpose, less energy, less drive. Life is even harder than it was before. Let me give you a clue. I'm going to say so many profound things today. Satan encourages hopelessness. Satan encourages hopelessness. That's not profound because it's talking about Satan. But it is a truth that most people do not understand. Because Satan loves it when someone has no purpose. He loves it when people become bored and tired with living. He loves it when we become depressed. He wants us to become addicted to medicines and booze and, and drugs and other things that we need to pick us up and get us through. Oh, if I only can make it, I need another five-hour energy drink. Oh, if I just make it to the end of the day, I need more coffee. I need more of this. I need more of that. They can't make it without something to help them. He wants us to hate life. Satan wants us to blame others. For our problems. Blame the government. Blame the system. Blame the current president. 
Blame the pastor, blame your parents, blame your town, blame something. It's not your fault. It's always somebody else's fault. Jesus is the opposite of Satan. Satan loves hopelessness. Jesus gives people hope and purpose for your life. How do you make it every day in this drab world? You get up and you say, hi, Jesus. What are we going to do today? What do you have planned for me today? As I go through my routine, what is it today that you will give me? What is it today that you will ask me to do? Every day becomes an adventure with Jesus, but only if you let him drive. Deb and I, not too long ago, we were on pastors and wives retreat in a quaint little village in um, southern Indiana, and, and they had double-decker double bikes, <laughs> tandem bikes. Bicycle built for two. There you go. I let her drive. We had fun. We couldn't even get out of the parking lot. So picture yourself now with Jesus. When you first get saved, you put him on the back seat. This is nowhere in here, but, you know, sometimes God just leads me away. Because we want life to be boring. We want life to all fit in. So we're, oh, going to work today. But tell you what, put Jesus in the front of that thing, and he'll just say, pedal, and hang on. Right? Because he's going to take you places that you weren't going to plan on, that you weren't going to experience that day, people you didn't, you didn't plan to run into, but he's running you all over the place because he has a job for you to do, and it goes not with what's here on earth, but what's going to be in heaven. And he's preparing you for something bigger and greater and wants to use you. So we climb on the back and we hang on and say, okay, God, where do you want us to go? Better than Debbie driving. She did a good job. I'm the one that got my pants caught in the chain. So the simple truth I want to share from this story is God wants to restore a sense of hope and purpose in every person's life. Amen. So let's look at it. Sometimes life feels hopeless, number one. Sometimes life feels hopeless. And this is another story that's unique to Luke. Luke has a lot of stuff that's unique to him. And, and he seems to take a special interest in women and in people's personalities and medical situations and sicknesses and stuff like that. Uh, I advise women to just get into the book of Luke because it's all you. Guys, John, that's for, or better yet, Mark, because it's real short and cut and... You get through it in 16 chapters. But anyway, um, but, and then if you want to get the whole Jewish thing, get into Matthew. But I mean, the way you approach the Gospels, 
Luke is all about feelings and all about hurts and all about situations of life. And, and this is one of those he tells. After healing the centurion servant, another healing thing, um, Jesus had left Capernaum the day before. That's what it says. And, and now he is traveled this distance to be here at the little country village of Nain. It says, now it happened the day after. So the day after he... Uh, he'd healed the centurion servant in Capernaum. And he's entering this village of Nain, and, and besides the 12 disciples, Luke tells us there's a group of people also following Jesus. He said a large group. In order to, uh, these people were willing to give up a portion of their lives. I talked about that last week. There were the 12, but then there were other people in the life of Jesus that, that were willing to sacrifice some types of their life just to follow Jesus, to learn and to be taught, etc. So, this group was following him along. They observed and learned from Jesus. They didn't stay the total trip in every area. Probably when he left Galilee and went to Judea, they stayed behind and vice versa. But there was a group that were following him at this time because they wanted to know the way, the truth. They wanted to know the life. They wanted to know how to do this, this new kingdom that Jesus is preaching. And this is early in his preaching career. So when this group with Jesus arrives at the city gate, they met another group, large group, it says coming out of the village. So Luke is creating a scene here. He's setting it up for us. The two groups are going to converge. One full of life, another full of death. One excited about the teacher that's with them, Jesus, and the other one discouraged and depressed and down because they're carrying this body of this young man out of the city. So as the two converge, you're, you're sitting on the seat, uh, edge of your seat, right? And you're saying, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? And let me throw something into the mix that has nothing really to do with the story, but everything to do with the teaching of Scripture, because I was reading and, and, and studying, and some of the older Bible scholars have questioned Luke's account that there was a gate at Nain. It says he met him at the gate. People have looked in vain to looking around the city to discover ruins of a wall around the town. If there couldn't be a wall, then why would there be a gate? Because the gate doesn't prove anything unless you have something else there. And a lot of the cities and villages had walls. But Nain is backed up against a mountain, or, or, or actually a series of hills. Um, and so they would only need it across the front. But they, they couldn't find it, so they were beginning to say the scriptures must be inaccurate, or Luke just didn't know what he was talking about, etc. But in 1982, I got a, a later commentary that said in 1982, an archaeological team discovered the walls that used to be around Nain, proving that this was true. And I just think, again and again, people have tried to prove Scripture to be an error, but time after time, later discoveries have been made to prove that it is accurate in almost every detail. And that just kind of blesses my heart. He says they were met at a gate. Well, there ain't no gate there, because there ain't no wall, so it couldn't have happened. But they were looking in the wrong spot. Back to the story. <laughs> just throwing that in there. Jesus and his group were coming toward the town. A group of mourners are heading out of town. They're heading towards the burial caves that you can still see beside the roads leading on out. There's caves along there, and they were pretty sure that that's where they were going. Now, this procession heading out, and, and it's a funeral procession. And in our culture, what do you do when you see a funeral procession? 
Oh, you just ignore them and keep on going, right? You're supposed to. I've seen them keep on going. Almost took out a policeman when I was in the procession one time. That woman had no clue, and he was on a motorcycle. Whoop, he laid it over, got out of her way. But nowadays, you're supposed to pull over and show respect. Down south, I've even seen people get out of their cars in respect. Not always, but a few times. Um, but in, in Jesus' day, it's different. Don't you wish you were living in Jesus' day? In Jesus' day, you saw a funeral procession, and you met them, you joined them. So you can imagine today, if you find out there's a funeral, you'd be taking the side streets around, getting away from the procession, because otherwise you have to get in line and follow them along, just, just pointing out. Can you imagine? So Luke pointed a, painted a verbal picture of these two groups meeting near the town gate, one's full of life and energy, the teacher is leading them, they're going to see something new and exciting, they're going to hear something today. They were following the teacher, he was driving the bike and they were riding behind. What's going to happen? Then there's this group that's coming out of the city, depressed, they're sad, the hired mourners are, are wailing and carrying on, and, like they were paid to do and they were really good at it, it's part of their culture. And the friends of the dead man, the friends of this widow from this small town where everybody knew everybody, they're grieving. So pretty much the whole town probably is going with them. And they knew the story. And they knew what this meant to this woman. So as these two group met, group meet, we have Luke describing a hopeless personal situation that, that I've been alluding to. In verse 12, the cause of the crowd leaving the city was that they're carrying out a dead man. He's in an open coffin, probably more like a stretcher. His body then would be slid off that stretcher onto a shelf in one of those caves. There he would decompose. And after a while, sometimes they would take the bones and bury them out in the, a plot. Leave the slot for somebody else. That was just kind of the routine for normal people. Now, rich people had other routines, but this was, this was what was going to happen. But then comes the clincher. This man, Luke tells us, was the only son of his mother, and she was a, did you get it? A widow. Now, you read over that, and it probably didn't mean a whole lot. Dead man, the only son of his mother, she is a widow. Now, me emphasizing that, now your Old Testament and Jewish culture is beginning to flow through your mind, and you're beginning to think to know that this was a picture of very devastating loss. This woman was a widow, and her only child had just died. So no husband, no children. So now she has no heirs. She has no way to get heirs. Kind of reminds you of the whole Ruth story and Naomi. Right? Her property would be taken over by the next of kin. She had no future. Her situation was hopeless. Kindness and charity of others was all that she had to hope for. And how long would that last? So this woman was at the end of her rope. Her purpose in life was over. This was her life. 
laying on that open coffin, going down the road, because they didn't even have nursing homes. What was she going to do? I don't know if she could stay in her house for until she died. I don't know. Probably dependent on the next of kin and how they treated her. Her purpose was gone with this man because who was going to support her? No government support. No way of making a livelihood except if she could go out and pick the grain that was left over in a field or something. Many of you can identify with this woman at some personal level. Most of us who have lived for a while have experienced some kind of feelings of hopelessness. Sometimes the hopelessness was in our own lives. Something we did to ourselves. Or something that someone else did to us. I've experienced the rejection of people. I've experienced the loss of employment. I've, I've, I've experienced the hurt of my own sins. The stabs in the back of former friends. I've experienced the grief of death. So most of this stuff of life, and most of you can, can add a few more or subtract from my list, but make your own list, of you personally feeling hopelessness, that I can't do anything about this. I'm helpless. Sometimes that hopelessness is in the life of someone we know. Like this, these people following this widow out would have felt it for her. She was part of their community. I tried to encourage a pastoral friend this week. His mother-in-law is dying, and she seemingly has no interest whatsoever in Jesus. So I prayed with him that the love of Jesus would shine through this pastor and his wife until that love of Jesus would break down the walls of resistance and cause this woman to want Jesus, the one that they have shared with her through their love. It happens to someone else. Your heart goes out. There's people in our church facing a similar situation in their family. It's hard sometimes to identify hopelessness within yourself, though. You can often see it in others, but we tend to hide from facing it when it happens to us. It's easier to continue the familiar uh, walk through the day and the spiral down than to make the changes necessary to say, this is a bad situation, I need a new purpose for my life, I need to start over, I need to start afresh, I need to go in a different direction, I need to change. It's hard for people who are in hopeless situations to understand that they need to do something about it. It's easier just to continue to do what they're doing. But let me tell you this. I believe in restoration. I've experienced it in my own life. I know that God can take a hopeless situation like some of them I have been, and when I have surrendered to his will and yielded to his purpose, he started my life over again. He gave me a reason to continue. He gave me a reason to go forward and do his will and have purpose in my life again. He restores. 
He restoreth my soul. He restores. I'm making a point. Because whatever your hopeless situation, there is a God who restores hope within you, purpose for you. Back to our story in Luke. You may not put this together, but a miracle of resurrection took place only two miles south of Nain. You can even see it on a modern map in a little town called Schumann. Just on the other side of that, there's hills in between there. Like I said, Nain backs up against the hill. I think she would have been familiar with this story. It's found in 2 Kings chapter 4. It's quite an involved story where the Shunammite woman sees this prophet that keeps going by. And so she says to her husband, they were kind of wealthy. He had a lot of people working for him and a lot of crops out there. And she said, can't we... Uh, Build a room in the roof of, flat roof of our house for this prophet? And he said, sure. So she built a room and furnished it, put a bed in there and a table and pitcher of water and all kind of things and went out and got Elijah and said, whenever you're coming through, you got a place to stay. So he and Gehazi, his servant and whatever, and they would stop by on their travels. Well, he said, I wonder what I could do for this woman because she's been so nice to me. And his servant said, well, she doesn't have a son. So Elijah calls her in. He says, woman, I understand that you don't have a child. I'd love to have the Lord to give you a child. She says, oh, don't you make me no promises. Don't you get my hopes up. She really wanted a child. Again, it's a similar situation. Who's going to take care of you after your husband's gone? He said, a year from now, you'll have a child. Just the story goes on. She has the child. It grows up. And he comes a, is out one day playing in the field, following the workers around, and grandpa on his tractor, or dad on his tractor, and I don't know what all they were doing out there. And he said, Oh, my head hurts. So one of the servants was sent to carry him back in to the mother, and he was dead. And she said, Don't tell anybody. She took him upstairs and laid him on Elijah's bed and then sent. Servant after Elijah. And he comes back and, well, he sends his servant first and put the staff on and all that kind of stuff. But finally he gets there and he prays. The boy comes back. Now that occurred just two miles away. I think about this. I'm reminding you of this story because I think that she probably knew about this. This widow had heard that story. Happened years ago, two miles away. But the important lesson that spoke to me is that past victories are not sufficient for today's needs. Right? Oh, that woman got her boy back, but that was when Elijah was around. But a greater than Elijah is coming. Amen? In fact, he is here. He's at the gate. Past victories are not sufficient for today's needs. Sometimes those victories even seem to mock us because she's saying in her heart, uh, miracles only happened back then. 
right? Isn't that the way the devil is? They only happen to special people. They only happen to spiritual people. They only happen to people that take in prophets and take care of them. It only happens to those kind of people. It doesn't happen to me because I'm ordinary. I'm normal. Jesus died for the special people. Jesus heals the special people. Jesus cares for special people. Isn't that a big lie? I know a whole lot of people that are like me. I wasn't too special when Jesus found me. I was just another sinner. He's making me special every day. It's like he's working in you. Amen. So we say, oh man, it only happens. He doesn't care about this widow. He doesn't care about her son. At least that's the way it seemed. But God did care. And that's why this story continues. Because I'm spending a lot of time on this. But sometimes life feels hopeless. But when you feel hopeless, remember, Jesus cares. Number two, Jesus cares. As the two groups converged outside of town, Jesus and the widow met. Their two groups collided, converged. Verse 13, Jesus sensed her despair. He, filled, he was filled with compassion for her. He spoke to her, please don't cry. There was something about Jesus. There was something about his compassion. There was something about the tone of his voice. There was hope and caring in his eyes. It stopped the whole procession. It made her sense, oh no, it's something different. Elijah has come. And he will heal my boy. I don't know when she thought through that process. I don't know exactly what she was thinking, but this widow was hopeless. Then she met Jesus. Now, there is no way this widow was expecting Jesus. But I believe that Jesus was expecting to meet this widow. This was not coincidence. This was part of God's plan. This was part of God's purpose. How, pastor, do you know that? I'm glad you asked. Remember, Jesus had left Capernaum the day before. You can look it up. Do you know how far he traveled to get here the next day? 21 miles. So he left after healing them because he had to get here. I don't know if they walked all night. I don't know how long it takes to walk 20 miles with a whole group of disciples and a bunch of other people that are tagging along. They probably stopped somewhere and, and picked some grain or something and had a lunch and, and, and probably slept a little while. I don't know. But Jesus walked 21 miles to get here at this point of time, whatever it took to be there when she is leaving the gate of the city. Now, is that coincidence or what? That was on purpose. If that doesn't bless your heart, this might. How do I know Jesus came here on purpose? The town of Nain is located next to the range of hills of which Mount Mora was part I have fun looking it up. You can see the old maps, but I Googled the town and actually saw a picture of what it looks like today. And one of the 
pictures actually showed the, the road, the main road that leads into the town. And also there's another picture that shows uh, a, an old church in there that is named for this occasion. It's called the, uh, uh, the Church of the Resurrection of the Widow's Son. <laughs> I saw a picture of it as well. This is modern day of, well, maybe a few years back, but they actually built a, a church to commemorate this event. So you can look today and see this is where it happened. Well, I got to thinking about that. You can see in the Google Maps, if you do it topographical, the, the hills that are behind the town and all the other towns and villages that have sprung up over the years around uh, Nain. And with the modern road building equipment, there's now a small road that, that leads from the back of Nain following the contour of the hills that winds around and actually comes back to some of the other towns that have grown up through there. But as I read and, and looked at this initially, and you can still see it, there's a main road that leads into Maine. Those other roads back through the hills were not available in Jesus' day. There's also a kind of an offshoot road now that comes in to the main entrance at an angle. But I can visualize back before all those other towns, before all that other stuff, what really took place, the main road north and south that Jesus was on from Capernaum heading, heading somewhere else. And then he got to this dirt road And the group probably wondered what on earth he was doing. He turned down this road. The only entrance. The road that led only to Nain. Back then, if you went to Nain and you wanted to leave Nain, you had to turn around and go back the way you came. It was one of those towns, the little villages, that was on the end of the road. There was nothing else there. You couldn't go on at that point, up over the hills, unless you just wanted to climb a mountain. So Jesus, with his group, came down that road, walking 21 miles, and he said, white group, we need to turn down this road. He took a side road to, on purpose, walk toward that town to meet a woman as she is exiting the gate with a group of mourners carrying her son in an open coffin. He arrived at the exact moment she needed his help. Think that's coincidence? Let me ask you something. Do you think Jesus cared about this particular woman? Yes, he did. Let me ask you something else. Do you think Jesus cares about your needs? Yes, he does. There's no doubt about it. Sometimes life feels hopeless, but when it does, remember, Jesus cares.
the story doesn't end quite there yet. Because if you let Jesus get involved, your life has purpose. You have to have this point in here, because we could stop at saying, well, Jesus cares. But the problem with stopping there is most of us would say, Jesus cares if he does it my way. If he steps into my life and fixes it up the way I want it to be fixed. Isn't that what we want? We want our mothers to be healed and restored back so I can have a mother again. We want life to go back the way it was. We want our job reestablished just the way it was. We want everything forgiven and forgotten just the way it was. Jesus, do it that way. But Jesus cares, but he doesn't always do it our way. And we struggle with that. Well, I prayed for this to happen, and this had better happen, or God's not loving me. Right? And that's wrong theology. So if you let Jesus get involved, you got to let him get involved. you got to let him do what he's going to do. you got to surrender to his will, because God's going to show you he cares, but he may not do it the way you want him to do it, or the way you prayed for him to do it. That's why we pray in Jesus' name. And we say, thy will be done. I love that new song, thy will be done. Someday somebody's going to sing it here. Cindy did. That's right. Because we're going through life, and, and one of the hardest phrases that we have to say is the phrase Jesus prayed when he taught us to pray. Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. But we don't mean that part. My will be done. Do it my way, Jesus. Then we'll get out of this problem. We'll get through this struggle. No, it's thy will be done. And what was it, Jesus, when he's facing the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane? What's he pray? I don't want this to happen. Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And so he went to the cross, thank the Lord, thank the Lord, praise God. Didn't want to do it, but I'm going to do it because you have to do it Jesus' way. If you're going to get involved with Jesus and he's going to come in and show you he cares, he's going to show you he cares, but he's going to show it to you and he's going to start you on a different direction, but you got to go his way, not your way. Write that down there because you're going to need that. So Jesus spoke to the widow, and when he reached out and he touched the open coffin, oh, you don't do that? That shocked everybody. They stopped the whole group. What's going on here? They were carrying the coffin, and they, they stood still. They, they, what on earth? Because teachers, rabbis, do not touch coffins. You're going to let Jesus do it his way, or you're going to do it your way? Oh, don't touch the coffin. Because then you'll be unclean. Of course, some of the guys had to carry it, so that was just part of it. And they had to wait a whole week and had to go through all this ritual cleansing, etc. Did Jesus create that rule? I think it's interesting. Luke has a big problem with ceremonial laws. And the way Jesus just kind of walks by them and says, it really doesn't matter, you know? Why? Because Jesus is looking at this woman who needs his touch. He's looking at this dead man who needs his touch. And he can touch a coffin. It doesn't matter what the rule is if it means releasing. 
if it means freedom, if it means new life and a new start. Better not take away my favorite thing out of the church. Well, if God himself came down here and told me to do that, I know it wouldn't be right. That goes against the traditions. Well, high church has been in existence for 100 years now. I wonder how long God's been in existence. I wonder if he's ever changed some of the rules. I wonder if Jesus coming changed the rules from the Old Testament. I'm just saying some of our sacred cows have to fall before the cross of Jesus. And when Jesus steps in, he says, oh, I don't care about this. Stop the coffin. Raise this man up. Let's change lives. And some of us won't see changed lives because we're still stuck in a coffin. Don't do that. No, we don't do this. And I'm not saying anything about moral laws. I'm talking about ceremonial laws. I'm talking about things that have less to do with anything except we want to love Jesus with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? I'm not talking about sin. I'm talking about stuff. When you grew up and you had to have long sleeves and long dresses and all this kind of stuff, you know, that was so important back then. Well, all of you should be in your best Sunday go to meet and clothes. You ought to know that. Suits and ties. Come on, guys. Where you at? Women, dresses for Sunday. I hope you brought your little bonnet on top of your head. That's the way it used to be. But it's not about those things. It's about a relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen? Well, I thought a few people get excited. And you could wear any color as long as it was black. You could drive any color car years ago as long as it was black. Henry Ford made sure of that. This teacher touched the stretcher, carrying the dead body. If you touch anything associated with a dead person, it makes you unclean. Rabbis don't like to be clean. Rabbis are spiritual. They stay away from the dirty. They stay away from the unclean. Luke emphasized that Jesus is not concerned with that ceremonial law. He's more concerned with making a difference in the lives of people. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. Maybe there's a lesson for us. So many of us want Jesus to help us, but we want him to do it in our own way. Or the proper way. Well, I know that wasn't God, because if he'd have done it, he would have done it in the way that we Nazarenes believe. Well, that, that man couldn't, he didn't fold his hands and close his eyes when he prayed. And we have this stupid radical pastor who paces the floor all the time. That's not the way you did it. Well, certainly not in John Wesley's day because you mounted this pulpit that stood 20 feet above the people. And if you were to walk, you'd fall. Well, that ain't the way we used to do it. 
So God, you can't be working. God, you can't be helping because you didn't do it the proper way. You didn't do it my way. And Jesus wants to come and help people in their helplessness again and again and again. But no, if he doesn't do it in our prescribed way, then it can't be Jesus. It can't be right. And I'm not going to listen or I'm not going to do it. We put Jesus in a box, folks, and Jesus has never been boxed up his entire life. He fooled them all. He messed with the religious elite all the time because they had all their boxes about what you do and what you don't do. And Jesus says, you won't even lift your little finger to help help somebody out because you're too busy pressing around, following all your rules. Listen, maybe instead of doing it the proper way, maybe Jesus wants to help you out of your situation in his own perfect plan and way for you. Maybe you need to surrender, right? Surrender, thy will be done. Surrender, because God is a little smarter than you. He's a little stronger than you. He's been around just a little bit longer than you. And he's looked at this from a whole different perspective than you. And he may actually know where he wants you to end up. And so he may have a better plan than you do for your life. And he may have a way to get you out of the spiral and doing something for him. Standing tall, being a soldier for Christ. So Jesus stops the funeral procession. He touches the coffin. He says, arise. The man who was dead sat up and he begins to speak. Jesus presents him to his mother. People from both groups said they're going, what has happened? And they witnessed the first time that he raised somebody from the dead. He did it three times that we know of. And so they witness this miracle and they have a story to tell. And they begin to spread it everywhere they go. Was this a prophet? What what is this? What's going on here? Jesus is something else. And the widow's life had purpose again. So the crowd's reaction, I'm just kind of leaving out of the story. That's But think of this woman. Son sets up, he speaks, he's given back to her. Her life is whole again. Now, then you have to do some assumptions. Guys, I wish we knew the end of the story. I wish Jesus and Luke would have written about it. He'd come back by here about 10 chapters later, you know. I just. Coming back by to check on the widow of Nain and her son, see how things were going. And this is the report. This is your favorite TV reporter checking in 10 years later. And now you know the rest of the story. Some of you know that. That's Paul Harvey. That was a few years ago. But I wish we knew the rest of the story. I assume that the son went to work. And supported his mother until she died. I assume that. I assume that he got married, 
he had a son over, of his own to take over the family property for another generation, and, and that that continued. I assume he did his part. I'm assuming that when he rose, he did not just, oh, I'm a, I'm a town celebrity now, and, and just sat back and, no. I think he went and did his part. I think he took care of his mom. I think he made sure that the property got used and the crops got grown and got married and had his own child and, and the thing continued. I assume this, but I don't, there's no way to know for sure. But I assume he did this part and the widow now has a purpose for living. And the time came and she died. What a story. A church built sometime later in that honor of that event. The point I'm making with these assumptions is that the touch of Jesus changing their lives was not enough. They had to make the most of this new beginning, this fresh start. Bringing the widow of Nain's son back to life, if that was the end of the story and he sat around and did nothing the rest of his life, when it really mattered, right? But because I assumed that they got involved and started doing what they were supposed to do, life went on and had a purpose and it had a meaning for her. You have to make the most of the times when God comes in and changes. You have to surrender to his will and then you have to follow his will. Amen? You have to make the changes. You have to do what he's calling you to do. Well, Jesus saved me, and I'm sitting back and doing nothing with my life. What are you supposed to do? Follow Jesus. Work for him. When God does a miracle of salvation in your life, the next steps are up to you. Are you going to grow in discipleship? Are you going to get busy serving Jesus? Are you going to make the necessary changes? I hope so, because sad to say there are some people that do very little with this new opportunity given to them by the touch of Jesus on their lives, and they just sit around and do nothing. But God gave them an opportunity, and I assume that they ran with it with everything they had, a new life, a new start. Let's make the most of it. I've asked Ian to come and sing a song. It's not on the schedule, but as he gets ready, I just want to tell you something. Sometimes our circumstances seem hopeless. And when that happens, remember, Jesus is near. And Jesus cares. Allow Jesus then to get involved in your life and your life will have a purpose again. Amen? Amen. It will. I believe that God is here today. He's here on purpose. He's here to touch your life. He's here to change your circumstances. He's here to give you a fresh start. He's here to give you a new purpose for living. Whatever you're facing, Whatever your circumstances, are you ready to let Jesus change your life today? We call it family altar time when people come and talk to Jesus about anything. Ian comes to sing this song. Let's come and talk to Jesus about it. Amen? Let's do that. This is your time. It's your time to mind the Lord.
to stand together. This is your opportunity to come to the hope called Jesus. Bring whatever it is. You may be praying for yourself. You may be praying for somebody else. But don't neglect the opportunity to give Jesus the situation that's bothering you today. And you may want to come and pray with somebody else too. Because God is telling us today, I am here. Be not afraid. I can touch and change your life. I can move in circumstances beyond your control. And I will on purpose make a difference. If you'll let me. So Lord, as we bow our heads and we call upon you and we pray to you today. We want to thank you for the many, 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 many times you stepped into a hopeless situation and changed it. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. But we also want to say, and now we have an obligation and a responsibility to surrender to your perfect will. Help us to surrender to you, Lord. Because if we're going to have you change the circumstances of our life, if we're going to have you give us a new purpose and a fresh start, then, Lord, we've got to be willing to say yes. Not my will, but your will be done. So I pray that all over this congregation, people are saying, yes, Lord. Your will be done. That may take us down different roads than we plan to travel. It may give us different ministries than we plan to do. It may, it may give us different friends. It may give us different situations in life. But Jesus, we don't care as long as you're in it. <laughs> because it's our job to stay in the center of your will. So today we surrender to you. For those who are praying here today, we give you praise. For all the circumstances that are represented by our church family today, some on hospice and some, Lord, and without God, some, Lord, that are in a nursing home, some that just are in hospital, some, Lord, that are just in difficult situations. We don't know where to go, but we turn to you because you have the words of eternal life. You are the way, the truth, and the life. And whatever this week brings, whatever we face, it's going to be with the hope of Jesus the purpose of Jesus, the path of Jesus. We will walk in it. We've heard of answers prayers. We want to thank you for that, Lord. We need some more prayers answered. We come to you with the lost today of our friends and family. We come to you today with our questions and our concerns. We come today and we surrender to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we ask God to show us the way. Show us the way. And we will walk in it. Lord, we're going to worship you now. Reflect on what you've talked to us about. 
And in a few minutes, we'll be leaving this place better because we know Jesus cares. And we know that you love us. And we know that you're working in our lives. So we just say thank you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for speaking to us today, reminding us how much you love us, how much you care. Thank you, Lord. Amen.